سلام اسم من ادینه اهل امریکا هستم و داریم به فلوئنت شو گوش میکنین Welcome to the Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living and learning languages. Yes, all three of those things. Hello everyone, my name is Kirsten Cable and I'm here to talk about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. Oh my God, am I going to have so much to talk about? I have about 700 questions because my guest this week is so exciting, so interesting, has so much to say, has so much to, has so much knowledge. We are going to be here and this podcast is, I'm going to try my best. My mission today is not to make this podcast four million hours long. My guest, let's introduce her properly, is Erin Morgan. Hey, Erin. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. I don't even mean that in this so excited to be here kind of way. I'm genuinely super, super excited. Oh my uh, God, so am I. <laughs> listeners, if you've never heard of Erin, let me give you a little bit of a summary about her. Erin grew up in a small monolingual town in rural Maryland, which is in the US of A. Wanting to explore the world, she began studying Spanish at age 13 Erin has studied Arabic and French. She studied that in college. She completed an MA in Islamic history and then began a PhD in Iranian linguistics and taught Arabic for several years. Throughout her studies, Erin traveled to Peru, Jordan, Israel, Palestine, Armenia, Georgia, the Netherlands and Belgium. And now she works as a translator and private teacher in the US, sharing her love for Western and Central Asia historical linguistics and language contact. So as you can already hear, there is like a trip around the world, global global, <laughs> global linguistic impact in all the languages that Erin has studied. And the number is just mind blog, blogging, mind boggling. It is insane. <laughs> But we are going to focus mostly on languages of Western and Central Asia, because I think that's Not something I've ever talked about. And now I've got the expert. Before I start the interview, of course, let me just do a quick shout out to our show sponsor. And people, the sponsor of like the gold standard sponsor from last year, Yabla is back. I'm so excited. Yabla have got back in touch and they're back supporting the Fluent Show. So let's support them. Give them a shout out. Yabla, Y-A-B-L-A, is language immersion through engaging videos for Spanish, English, Italian, French, German, and Chinese language learners. It features authentic content, TV shows, music videos, news articles, YouTube videos, vlogs, by native speakers and you get a custom playback option which gives you all the subtitles switch on target language switch on source language both nothing you could just play around with it you get a full downloadable transcript learning games and the flashcards are built in there as well so every time you click on a word in the subtitle it shows you what the word means and it adds it to your flashcards very handy Yabla is the premier language learning video platform online with tools to enhance conversational understanding. They've got even a dictation game where they play you a bit of the video and you type out what you understood. And that's incredibly helpful for your listening comprehension. 
You can give Yabla a try with my special link and that is yabla.com slash fluent show. And what I'm hoping to do by the time you listen to this show is also film a little video showing you how I study with Yabla and how I've set up my various bits and just kind of giving you a little bit of a tour. And you would also find that at yabla.com slash fluent show. So that's coming. That is an exciting video coming up for you. It's Yabla. Yabla.com slash fluent show. Thank you so much to Yabla for continuing to support our show. Thank you. Now, no Chinese, German, French, Spanish, Italian, Chinese, what was the other one? English <laughs> conversation. Next up, I want to turn my mind to a part of the world that Honestly, I I only know fragments about and I I want to discover its richness. So if we wanted to cover and talk about every language that Erin has studied, Erin, I think we'd be here in a continuous conversation until next week. How do you feel about that? It would it would definitely be a minute. I'm probably the Instagram queen of studying a language and dropping it a week later. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there's, there's, what, dozens of them, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I think my list of languages I've stopped is longer than the list of languages I've gotten to, like, a C-level fluency in. Fair enough. And I, I think you're not the only one. The double, is, the double is strong with you. Oh, definitely. But I want to focus on the geographical region and the group, I guess, group of languages, really geographical. Are they related? I know nothing. That that you have studied with a lot of passion and that kind of mark you out among lots of other learners because these aren't as widely learned as our German, French, Spanish, etc. And these languages, oh, I had trouble summing up the, the region name or the area name. Uh, so I took, your, I took my guidance from you and called it Western and Central Asian, Arab world. But what do we even call it? What, which region are we talking about? Give us an introduction. I mean, that's something that I think a lot of us, even those of us who work in this field professionally and in academia, struggle with. Um, because one, it's a wide swath of land, and two, it's so diverse. Um, so you get terms like Arab world, meaning the part of the world that speaks Arabic, but that's still, you know, that's North Africa, that's Western Asia, um, Central Asia, even that's a difficult term. People you know, sort of immediately go to, what is it, five? The five post-Soviet states, or the stands as people know them. But then where do you put Afghanistan? Where do you put Pakistan? Um, and where is the line between Central Asia and South Asia? Um, traditionally, we hear terms like uh, Middle East, which definitely comes from a very sort of Orientalist perspective. Um, and so even in the past few years, I've started using the phrase Western Asia. I think Western Asia and Central Asia really do at least geographically, define it quite well, especially for somebody like me who I work on the Arabic-speaking world, but not as much on North Africa. I do the Iranian lang like the Iranian linguistic world, which isn't just Iran, but it's Afghanistan and and Tajikistan and sort of historically parts of Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan and Pakistan. Um, I do a little bit of work in Central Asia. I do work in the Caucasus, um, which is its own region altogether, but it is also theoretically Western Asia. So I've really sort of embraced the term Western Asia and Central Asia. Um, but again, they don't really cover the full diversity of the languages and the cultures and the peoples that 
live there. You know, it's such an, it's like saying North America and how diverse is North America or how diverse is South America or how diverse is Europe. It's still just a, it's just a geographical term. Mm. That's mad. You're reminding me of my first ever visit to Istanbul, the capital city of Turkey. And in Istanbul, they're very proud that when you cross this bridge over the Bosphorus, that you are in Asia. And then if you cross the bridge back, you're in Europe and then you're in Asia <laughs> and then you're in Europe and you can take a ferry and oh, you're in Asia again and you're in Europe again. <laughs> and then if you take a Turkish, if you take an Istanbul taxi, you are very quickly in Asia. <laughs> And in Europe, and someone might propose to you on the way. It's horrible. But <laughs> <laughs> so I remember the first time I went to Istanbul, kind of reading this and how proud they are. You know, this is really like a big part of tourism where they were saying, we're the gateway to Asia. Da, da, da. But I had always thought of Asia, that word, like maybe growing up as a German speaker, ASEAN, Asia. I, I only ever thought of the, the Far Eastern parts of Asia. You know, so Asia to me was Vietnam, China, Japan, Korea, mm -hmm. maybe Indonesia, that kind of region. Then later I worked, um, I, I had a little bit of work in Kazakhstan. So I kind of became aware of Central Asia, that that's a thing. But Western Asia, I've never heard to refer to as a region at all. And this is what is like, it's roughly the Arab Peninsula that we're talking about. Where is the... Give us a map. I've got a map in the show notes as well, listeners, by the way, um, <laughs> just to help you and me. I, if I had to draw a line between what, what, I, would, what I would call Central Asia and Western Asia, um, it would definitely be what we traditionally know as like the Arab world or the Middle East. Um, I think people, especially academics and people um, in more sort of liberally minded circles are trying to move away from words like Middle East because... It very much comes from an Orientalist perspective of sort of this historical mindset of colonists and sort of the researchers that came with colonists um, and viewing sort of the Arab world and, and Western Asia um, as, you know, being what's between the West and the East and thus calling it the Middle East. Um, so geographically, what we're looking at is, I would say Western Asia covers Turkey, um, at least the Asian port, uh, Asian part, but I guess we'll count the European part too. Um, it goes all the way down the Mediterranean coast along the, the, the coast of Syria and Lebanon, and then uh, Israel and Palestine. Um, personally, that's sort of where I stop. Is uh, So I would continue south and cover the Arabian Peninsula, but I wouldn't cover Egypt and North Africa. Um, there are separate terms for that. Some people now are using the term uh, SWANA, S-W-A-N-A, of Southwestern Asia and North Africa instead of what historically was MENA, Middle East and North Africa, um, to sort of refer to what we might also know as the Arab world. Um, and then I would consider Western Asia to move across the Arabian Peninsula into the Persian Gulf or the Arab Gulf, however you want to term it, and into the Iranian Plateau. Um, and go all the way to uh, the border of Iran with Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, at that point, I think, is where we start to get fuzzy about, is this Southern Central Asia? Is this Northwestern South Asia? You know, sort of Afghanistan and Pakistan are kind of in the middle. Obviously, Pakistan is culturally probably more similar to South Asia, mm -hmm. while Afghanistan is culturally sort of sits in between South Asian cultures and mm -hmm. um, historically Iranian cultures. And so um, there's obviously a lot of blurring and overlap. And I think each person, 
who works in this field has their own sort of definition. But uh, traditionally, like when I say Western Asia, I mean the Caucasus and Turkey, and then moving all the way south um, into the Arabian Peninsula, and then moving westward until I hit what I would call Central Asia, which would be the post-Soviet Central Asian states and um, Afghanistan, definitely. Um, Me personally, I don't really do a lot of work with Pakistan, so I think I often mentally sort of lump it with South Asia. Um, But I think there's definitely reason to say that it's part of Southern Central Asia or parts of, you know, Western Asia. However, however somebody chooses to draw these boundaries, a lot of times, I mean, they're just arbitrary the way, the same way that a lot of nation state boundaries are arbitrary. Um, These are just ways for us to sort of encapsulate parts of the world in our mind and try to make sense of all of it. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely listeners get your maps out because I think, like I said, it's it's a region of the map that you don't necessarily look at very closely. And it's because we don't consider it maybe as relevant, which is really interesting that you're picking up the term oriental and orientalist, uh, which I think saying saying anything is oriental is is I know is controversial now. But tell me just a little bit more about orientalist as a term what is what is the issue there so palestinian american scholar edward saeed wrote a book um i don't remember what year i'm bad with dates and i do history so that's bad but um he wrote a book called orientalism where he problematizes um this concept of what's known as western orientalism um which was pretty much um Western European powers like Britain and France, uh, when they came through Western Asia and they colonized it, um, and even when they traveled and did work in sort of um, Eastern Asia, or what a lot of us traditionally think of as Asia, there came a certain amount of like romanticism along with it, and a lot of just a lot of issues with the way they describe it. You know, very old textbooks, when you read them, they refer to Islam as Mohammedanism, um, meaning the religion of Muhammad or Muhammad worship or something, which is exactly like not what it is. Um, And so he problematizes a lot of this and sort of uh, exposes um, issues in kind of the dialectics around how Western academics refer to um, Western Asia, and they overgeneralize it, or they often, you know, would write these books. I mean, this is like into the 80s and 90s. I've seen books where people are like, you know, writing um, very sort of pejorative accounts of how they view Arab culture or other Western Asian cultures. Um, and so he publishes this book and he calls it Orientalism as this sort of romanticism towards the East, towards the Orient. Um, and so now the word Orientalist and Orientalism is very much this kind of taboo word. Um, personally, I struggle with it. Um, I say this on my Instagram bio that my master's advisor once told me that I was an Orientalist, once told me that he was an Orientalist, and not in the traditional term of, you know, an Orientalist being one of these bad, you know, functionally racist uh, Western academics who looks down on Western Asia and Central Asia and lumps all of it together. But for somebody like me and for somebody like him, it's really difficult for us to say that, oh, I just work on Arabic and so I'm an Arabist, or oh, I just work on Iranian languages and so I'm an Iranist, or somebody working on Armenians and Armenologist, and you know, and all these sorts of concepts and terms that we used to define ourselves in our profession and our field. 
And so when we see people like me or people like him, who was trained as an earnest and as an armenologist, and he spoke Arabic, and he had traveled throughout many parts of Western and Central Asia, and he spoke fluent Russian, how do you sort of term somebody who does all of these things? Um, and and I personally, I still don't use the word Orientalist because I think it has such a negative connotation and taboo with it. But I also find it difficult sometimes to explain what I do to people because, you know, I work professionally as an Arabic translator and an Arabic teacher, and I also translate Persian. And then I'm like sitting here studying Kazakh or Armenian or, you know, or I work historically on linguistics of pre-Islamic Central Asia, um, which is, you know, Iranian languages that aren't spoken there anymore. And so it really is hard to find what is a single word or a single term that defines what somebody like me or my master's advisor do for a living. I get it. This is this makes a lot of sense and gives me a lot of context because for a long time we've we've been connected on on Instagram and you document your studies a lot and you share so much and without the context that you've just given sometimes it's super confusing because Every language, you know, there is such a variety of languages that you study and that you engage with that sometimes from the outside, and I don't mean this in a judgy way at all, it's just in a, in a confused way, really, which is, <laughs> I'm used to it. Like I've seen many people, I've seen many polyglots and many people who love just, you know, putting, adding a lot of languages just into like the shopping basket. But to, I'm really grateful that you've given me this context because it, it helps me understand how things kind of fit together in this bigger puzzle. Yeah, I think I think it's something that I do get, you know, I know you're not saying it in a judgy way, but I do get a lot of judgment about, oh, well, she does Arabic and she does Persian and she does Kazakh and she's doing Mandarin and Russian and Armenian and, and how did we end up here kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But really, if you could see the inside of my head, which besides it being a mess, um, it really they all connect in a way, you know, like I studied Armenian because I was doing Iranian historical linguistics. And there's a lot of Iranian um, influence on Armenian throughout history and not just modern Persian words loaned into modern Armenia, which a lot of people will cite to you. But I mean, very old loans like the Armenian word to worship Pashtanel mean it comes from an Avestan word. Um, which Avestan was the language of Zoroastrianism. It's an ancient Iranian language that was spoken in the eastern end of the Iranian plateau and into what would be now known as uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, it comes from an Avestan compound verb, piety stava, which means to stand before, to kneel before someone um, in worship or in veneration or honor of them. And so these very sort of old words that are in Armenian that, you know, are there because of this very old language contact. And so when I think about what I do now in all my languages, there really is a connection between all of them. It's Arabic influence on Persian is how I ended up working on Iranian linguistics. And then Iranian linguistics let me spread into Armenian, it let me spread into Central Asia. And now because of just an interest in Central Asia, I work with um, at least in my own study, I work with modern Central Asian languages and modern Turkic languages. I work with uh, the Iranian dialect of Azerbaijani. I'm studying Kazakh during the summer. Um, I'm interested in Turkmen and Uzbek. And so it looks very diverse and almost in a very scatterbrained way, but it's all very much connected for me. Even things like Russian and Chinese, where 
you know, they might not be linguistically related to what I work on, but you cannot work in Central Asia without Russian. And China now, from an economic and geopolitical standpoint, is very much active in Central Asia and even parts of Western Asia now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so for me, I look at it very much as a practical language to 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 spend my time on in order to have more access to things to understand what's going on to be able to read more sources and perspectives and understand bias and things um so it does you're right it looks very diverse and very messy but i swear there's a reason behind all of it (laughs) (laughs) it's i love this i love i love how much i love how much you are how much understanding and how much of a story I'm getting here from from everything that I already knew about the languages that you do. Ah, this is exciting. <laughs> and you're, we're tying in, um, I'm going to come back to why do you love this region because I'm curious about this, but I think we are so naturally bridging over to your academic background and your academic studies of historical linguistics and how that all ties in together. Like you, you're already beginning to give me the story, really. Um <laughs> <laughs> which which makes you go oh wow oh wow okay like massively interesting that tell me tell me more about historical linguistics as a concept what is it can you go to university and just like pick it up why would you what made you like <laughs> give me historical linguistics for idiots please okay so historical linguistics is a subfield of linguistics um, in which you study functionally the history of languages, which a lot of people hear that and they go, oh, etymologies and where a word comes from. And that's totally a part of it. But historical linguistics goes much deeper and in much more detail. Um, personally, while I was in graduate school, I always used the term philology and philologist, which is pretty much it was the term for a field that later broke off into historical linguistics on a scientific end and comparative literature and cultural or area studies on a more humanities end. Um, But it was functionally the same thing. We studied linguistics, but we also studied linguistics of a specific region, a specific language family, a specific culture, whatever it may be. So the concept of historical linguistics is that if we study sort of modern language and look at where it came from, how do we figure out where it came from? How do we understand these things? Um, In a larger perspective, how do we look at language families? And what is the science behind, for example, comparing, you know, similar languages like the Romance languages and trying to figure out where did they come from and what did their development look like? And, you know, some linguists take this all the way back to Um, understanding what we know as proto-languages, so languages that are not attested but are uh, understood to be the historical ancestors of these languages, so things like Indo-European, Proto-Indo-European as a language, uh, Proto-Turkic, Proto-Semitic, all these sorts of uh, ancient ancestor languages or mother languages of modern-day language families. Um, My specific interest was always in language contact, um, I, I first came at it from a much more modern perspective. I did Arabic's influence on Persian and um, mostly just Persian after the time of the Islamic conquest of Iran, which uh, happens in the 8th century CE. And that really sort of jump-started me. And then I started doing some historical linguistics of you know things like I did classical Armenian, I did Middle Persian, and I did some Avestan. Uh, which Middle Persian is the ancestor language or the mother language of modern Persian. Um, And I looked at language contact and language change. And then when I got into my PhD, that got much more serious. Um, And so I I began taking courses in the theory of historical linguistics. That was during my master's degree. And then during my PhD, you know, I took courses in 
Sanskrit, Avestan, Old Persian. Um, I did summer courses in um, Avestan poetics and Sanskrit poetics um, and in other uh, modern Iranian languages um, to sort of be able to study more the the link between them and the understanding between them um, and how they're related historically. Uh, and in terms of being able to go to school for this, yes, you can. Um, you can go to school for linguistics, you can go to university for linguistics, and there are plenty of universities that do historical linguistics. I think it's hard sometimes to find the right school because, again, the world of language is so broad and so large, and historical linguistics is really about focus and minutia, which is why it, it was mm. even a struggle for me because I do such a large region and I'm interested in language contact and sort of the migration of languages and how they influence one another as people migrate across this region. Um, and most of the historical linguistics I know are doing things like, what happened to this sound in Albanian? And I'm sitting here going, you know, what happened in a 2000 year period across several thousand square kilometers of, of land. And uh, that's not really what graduate school is made for. But yes, you can certainly study this uh, at university. I, I think this is I think this is fascinating because it, it gives it gives a sense as well, not just of this historic linguistics, linguistics as a discipline, but you, you're touching on, you know, when you say focus minutia, you're touching on, I guess, um, kind of like personality type and thinking type as well. Like you're somebody who really, really likes to dig into details, mm -hmm. um, which is giving me actually a lot of perspective of why I'm so into sociolinguistics, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, just give me big picture. Um, exactly. this, this is so helpful. And again, I'd I'm thinking, do you think it might be that we can't pin down the region? Also, I mean, partly, I think, because we're in the West, we don't pay attention. Um, but it's also, from from what I know, historical, which is like you could put on a paperclip, there, there's a lot of nomadic societies there, right? But And there's no, it's not like Africa, okay, that has like a, a land-water border, right? There's, at some point, it just ends because we're able to go there, so that's where the water is. But with this particular region... It's a little fuzzier, and the people were moving around a lot. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Both um, the idea that people are nomadic, but also, um, you know, civilizations and empires come and go. Mm. And, you know, and so, like, even just within a small portion of the region, for example, let's look at, like, uh, the, uh, what's known as, what do we call it? The Mediterranean River Basin, or River Valley. The Mediterranean River Valley. So, not Mediterranean. Anyways, so the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, whatever that's known as, um, which is sort of in between, it's definitely in modern Iraq, and it covers parts of modern um, Western Syria. This historically, you know, has been home to several civilizations, and easily, just to name a few, you have I mean, you have very ancient, like, pre-writing civilizations. Then you have Assyria, you have Babylon, you have the Persians who come in, they migrate from, theoretically, depending on who you believe, they migrate from what was probably around the Ural Mountains um, or north of the Caspian Sea through Central Asia and then across westward across the Iranian Plateau. And then they cross, um, is that the Zagros or the Albors? They cross that mountain range there that's in between um, modern Iran and, and, uh, and Iraq and they uh, conquer Babylon. And they also conquer Elam, which was an empire in southern Iran. 
um, back then. And so you have all these people, and then you have when it's the Mongol Turkic invasion, that's the 13th century, they come through. And then at that point, you also get this weird dichotomy in the history of Western Asia where um, you have people who are in control who are not ethnically or linguistically similar to the populace. Um, actually, really, this happens at, at all periods. I mean, you have Iranian peoples coming in and conquering Elamites, who were not ethnically Iranians or even related to them in any way, conquering Babylonians and historically Assyrians. Um, you have then the Arab invasion in the 7th and 8th centuries, um, or 7th and 8th and 9th centuries. And then you have Arabs ruling over Iranians, uh, which is why in the history of Persian, we go from Middle Persian, and then we have this period of 200 years known as Dokhan e Sukut um, in Persian, which so it's the 200 years of silence where Persian wasn't theoretically written, but people kept speaking, uh, speaking it. And then you have um, sort of smaller Iranian um, kingdoms and small sort of lordships and even, I guess, even as small empires kind of rise up against the Arabs. And then you have Turkic invasions come in in the 13th century, 14th century. Um, and then at that point, I mean, through practically modern day Iran, like, you know, all of the quote Iranian empires or Iranian kingdoms or whatever term you want, governments, um, the Safavids, the Qajars, the, the, um, or the Safavids, so the Safavids, were the last ethnically Iranian one. But the Qajars were ethnically Turkic, but they spoke Persian in court and they um you know they they ruled over people who were ethnically Iranian peoples, uh, as well as Arabs. And then, you know, you had the Ottoman Empire, which we think of as this long lasting empire. They were ethnically Turks. They used Persian in court and then they transitioned to using Turkish in court. But they ruled over Arabs, they ruled over Europeans, like Eastern Europeans, Slavs, they ruled over um, Iranians, they ruled over such a large swath of land. And so when you look at this historically, this region is so diverse, um, and not only just because of nomadic peoples, but there are just so many different peoples that have settled in the region, um, that it really just... I don't know where I was going this to be, with this, to be honest, but it's just it's it's mind-boggling in some ways, and the, and there's so much there to study, and this is partially why I think a lot of people don't study it from a big picture perspective, is because it's difficult. You know, there's so many languages to be involved, there's so much history to be covered. Uh, you know, I I did this professionally in graduate school, and I still consider myself like somebody who works on this professionally now, even though I mostly do translation and teaching, um, but. And I so often feel like I don't understand even a fraction of it, um, just because there's so much there. So tell me then, given given all of that, mind-blowing, but also really difficult to take in stuff, because you're right, it is a lot. That is a lot of knowledge, and that is a lot to process, um, if you've never dealt with it before. But for you, this has been a part of your life for so, so long. Can you, I mean, I don't expect you to put your finger on it, but can you give a sense of what draws you there? Can you give a sense of what makes that region so special to you? This is something that I get asked a lot, to be honest. And, and even after, I mean, I've been working in this now for 11 years was when I started Arabic, and that was very much my intro to this region. Um, I still don't feel like I know what it is. I know very much that for Arabic, when I first started it, I fell in love with the language. Um, 
people are like, oh, well, I fell in love with Arab food or culture or, you know, history or music or something. I fell in love with the language and, and not just like, oh, it mm -hmm. sounds pretty. I fell in love with the way Arabic works on a grammatical level. It's unlike anything that we see in Indo-European languages. It made sense to me as somebody who focuses on patterns and, 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 and sounds. Um, it just it clicked with me and I loved it and it fascinated me to a level that I could not explain. You know, like I would get giddy. I still to this day, people ask me to explain like aspects of Arabic grammar or things and I get giddy talking about it. Um, and then from there, I'm not really sure what it was. I just, I, I don't know if it was this thirst to just always want to know more. And there's so much there in this region to always learn about. There's always something more to learn about. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was just the historical linguistics aspect of Arabic's influence on Persian or then, you know, language contact throughout all the waves of migration throughout the region. Um, you know, maybe from a cultural level, like I, I, I don't know. I've, I never felt, I, I don't want to say that I never felt as a foreigner or as an outsider living in the Arabic speaking world or spending time around peoples um, from Western and Central Asia here in the US. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you always sort of feel like an outsider. You're, you know, the white woman in the room of Arabs. And, yeah. Well, and, you're culturally and no way different. To, yeah, I'm never, but, well, I'm and, never going to be a Brit even, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and I am culturally different, but I also find that there are aspects of Arab culture and of just generally, if if I can be allowed to generalize for a minute, um, of a lot of the cultures in this region that very much feel like home in some ways, because um, by American standards, I was raised in a very conservative culture. Mm. Um and that's because of the religion that my parents were and how very much religious, religiously engaged they were. But a lot of the values I was given because of that are very similar to many of the values that we witness in this culture. Things like focus on family, focus on community, um, you know, respect for others, hospitality, these sorts of they saying them aloud sounds like. I hate to say, but like or orientalist stereotypes and tropes, but these are features of these cultures, and these are features that natives will tell you that, oh yes, well Armenians are very hospitable, or Arabs are very hospitable, or Iranians are very hospitable, and and that's true. But you know, for example, I remember living in Jordan, and I remember somebody asking me like, oh well, you know, you're queer, or at the time they said gay because. That's a whole separate topic, but I I was living as a man at the time I, um, because I'm trans, and uh, they they were like, oh well, that's so easy in the U.S. and I had to look at them and be like, no, like sure in certain cities in certain areas, but where I grew up and where I lived, it was very conservative. It was not easy. It was not mm -hmm. good in any way, um, and. And I don't highlight this to point out sort of negative aspects of some of the cultures of Western Asia and Central Asia, but I there there is something familiar about them to me in many ways, just because I think I was raised with very similar values that many of those cultures still hold. Uh, again, this some of this is very much gross generalization, but um, I don't think it's wrong. <laughs> well, it's it's about it's about what you find in it, right? And the question isn't really about how the how everybody else in humanity is supposed to look at it. And and I think as listeners as well, like I want if if you are listening, I mean you you have that discretion probably already, but it's you know this is this is about Erin's world and not about the whole world and how we all should look at things, and. Your 
what I'm what I'm hearing and what I'm reflecting on as I'm listening to you is, you know, so many people want to learn a language and so many people try to learn a language without without the almost without the heart, right? We, 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 we come at it, many, many people come at it from the intellectual perspective first. Like, how do I learn French? I go to France, I will learn French. Duh, duh, duh. <laughs> and, and, it, and then wonder why it's hard and why it doesn't work. And we often say like, oh, you just got to find a passion, you gotta, which obviously like you can't generate passion. You can't, I mean, if we knew how to do that, we, we wouldn't have heartbreak anymore. Yay. Um, but the, 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 when I hear you talking about like Arabic and you, and you mentioned so many things of like, you know, there's the cultural familiarity, but there's also like almost a, um, a brain familiarity where you're like, this is how my brain works and kind of the, gr the grammar I'm seeing here, what I'm the the way this world is ordered it just fits in with me and there's there's like almost a click which which is how i felt about welsh in a way like i felt mm -hmm. like it's just clicking like i get i i just really like making these sounds with my mouth this sounds awesome and i'm just i like the fact that i could switch into english at any point because i'm lazy <laughs> and because I, i you know i'm not a detailed person so i don't really I can cut corners with Welsh, left, right, and center. It's brilliant. Sorry, Welsh. Sorry, Welsh teacher. I know, I know, I know. I'm studying. Never mind. But, you know, and also it's a rural, um, it's a pretty rural region of the UK and really small. And that's actually, like, so often I've thought, oh, this is like, this is kind of like where I'm from because I grew up in the countryside and it's the countryside. And it's like people who will entertain themselves by driving a tractor up and down a field. And I get those people. <laughs> that's where I grew I up. I know those people. Yeah, you know, like... Maybe it's just us country people, but I do yeah. feel like there's something about the language is a gateway to a different region. Familiarity is what lets us see as humanity that we all have stuff in common, which is why I believe languages build tolerance. Sorry, I'm now making this into a huge thing. Um, <laughs> but bringing it back as well to like, when you say you fall in love with a language, I think that makes not just rational sense, but you're also giving a huge example and a huge incentive to anyone who is learning a language and they're feeling like they're just in their head about it to once again just go looking for where your heart connects with that because that is such a key part of what makes you to be honest what makes you good at it and i'm going to end it there because this is like a, a strange to, um ex excursus on into into feeling um And Erin, <laughs> let, let me bring it back to Western and Central Asia, as we will continue to call it, because that's, I feel that's a good catch-all, roughly. Yeah. Can you give me, you've already mentioned about 12,000 languages in this interview. <laughs> Can you give me sort of the top five languages from the region that you feel everyone, like, you got to know about these. If you know nothing else, you should really know about these. Um. I mean, that's hard because there's the part of me that goes, oh, I love this one. Oh, I love that one. Oh, that one's cute, too. <laughs> but but um, I would definitely say that. I mean, so obviously Arabic. I mean, Arabic's like will be the love of my life until the day I die, I'm pretty sure. Um, so I would definitely say Arabic. I would definitely say Persian. Um, Beyond that, I think one, so just generally, one of the biggest struggles I have when I teach, for example, and I've taught both privately and at universities, um, is people just being unaware. And so while there are great small minority languages that have their 
own uniqueness and culture and things like Baluchi and 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 Brahvi and um, I can't like Yagnobi or Wahi in Tajikistan. Um, sometimes I just struggle with you know I meet people and they say oh well I'm interested in you know going to Afghanistan because of you know the war or, you know whatever. And they're like, so I'm going to learn Arabic. And I just facepalm so hard. Um, and so I, I guess I would say like the top five languages that people need to know is Arabic, Persian, and they're not the same language, and they're not spoken in the same country. Um, although there's some overlap, sure. There are parts of Iran that speak Arabic. There are parts of Iraq that speak Persian. Um, and then I would say Pashto. Mm-hmm. So, Which is Afghanistan, um, right? Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should probably go back to Persian and say, so Persian is a weird term with a lot of history and issues around it, but a lot of people also know the words Farsi, they know the word Dari, um, and they think they're separate languages, or what, and, and in some ways they are, and in some ways they're not. So Persian is sort of a catch-all. So Persian slash Dari slash Farsi, look into it kind of thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, a lot of times when people say Farsi, they mean Iranian Persian. When they say Dari, they mean Afghan Persian, because that's how the Afghan constitution refers to it. And then Tajik, spoken in Tajikistan, is um, is another dialect of Persian. Um, so I'd definitely say Arabic, Persian, all of its dialects and sort of understanding the differences. Um, Pashto. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, I would say... Hmm. You can have six. That's fine, Erin. Okay. <laughs> um, I would definitely say um, like Armenian and maybe Georgian just because I love the Caucasus. I love my time in Armenia and Georgia. And I love Armenian as a language on a weird like soul level that I don't fully understand yet. Um, and I also want people to understand that. So they're also different. Georgian is not related to anything else in that region besides other languages spoken in Georgia. And Armenian's Indo-European, so it's not related to Arabic, um, but it is related to Farsi or Persian. And then, yeah, I'm going to have to go with like two more there. Um, just personally, I would say like Kazakh and Turkmen, just because I think Turkmen sounds awesome. It has a lisp, so their S's are th, which is fun. Um, and I just love the way Kazakh sounds. Um, and again, part of this idea of like just knowing, um, I think knowing that Kazakh, Turkmen, Kyrgyz, Uzbek, and Tajik are actual languages, and Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan are actual countries. I've literally mm-hmm. had people, when I say I speak Tajik, they're like, what? Where is that spoken? And I say Tajikistan, and their response is, that's not a real place. You're making that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are real countries. They have real languages. <laughs> Um, They don't all speak Russian, um, although a lot of people in those countries do, and you can get by with Russian a lot of times, but they do have their own sort of linguistic histories and and linguistic cultures and things. So, yeah, that's definitely more than five languages, Mm -hmm. but I think that would would be my my what everybody should know. It's not five specific languages, but just know that, you know, in the region that I consider myself to work on, there's probably something like 12 to 15 official languages just at that and that's not counting all the minority languages. And so being aware of what are these major languages that are spoken throughout this region. Because mm-hmm. I think just so many people don't even know that. You know, you say Kyrgyzstan and they're like, what? Where is that? What is that place? Is that, yeah. you know, in the Balkans? Like, no. <laughs> well, we, we want to meet people where they are. Exactly. And from, like, I, okay, 
I remember I've traveled to Kazakhstan a lot because I happened to, in my job, it happened to be that Kazakhstan became a relevant market for us. And it was assigned to me as my first non-European. So I was kind of excited because non-European is kind of prestigious in that field. Um, but also I remember being on the plane to Almaty going, what am I doing here? What, where am I even going? Where is, what is this? Where is this? Is this a real place? What is, what am I doing? What is happening in my life? It was so confusing because I didn't know about like I knew one person from Kazakhstan who went to my school, but because I'd never taken an interest, really, I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know about Tajikistan or whatever. So I, I'm completely, I feel like it's like, this is not un uncommon and, and, you know, that you can just meet people where they're at. But what I learned was maybe one of the reasons for this is, about, especially about the Central Asian sort of those, let's five, let's say, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. I feel like I've just passed an exam. Um, yeah. <laughs> at those five, which all sort of border on each other and they're all like this lump, but then Kazakhstan is huge. Mm -hmm. And Kazakhstan is bigger than Western Europe. Like, oh, yeah. what? It's Kazakhstan mad. is giant. <laughs> it's enormous. But I didn't even, you know, we don't know. And apparently, as I was reading more about Kazakhstan, one of the reasons for that is because in the Soviet state, they were all part of Soviet like let's call it Russia, the USSR or whatever, they kept those countries fairly quiet. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in an oppressive kind of way, but you know, already we had the Iron Curtain and there wasn't that much information traveling west. But then on top of that, that's also where they tested all their nuclear weapons is Kazakhstan, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and where they had a lot of where there is an awful lot of um natural riches what do you call it minerals and oil and yeah, natural resources yes mm -hmm. thank you <laughs> like stuff you can take out the earth and get rich so mm -hmm. all those regions that there was like a vested interest in the soviet of keeping them quiet and i think that rather than like we're all ignorant and oppressive i think there was there's sort of this historical reason maybe why we all don't know like what kazakhstan is or anything like that oh yeah i think that's 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 totally true. And 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 like you said about like meeting people where they are. I by no means like I joke about this, but I by no means would like judge somebody for not knowing where Kazakhstan is. Like this is part of my upbringing is people don't know these things and I'd rather educate somebody about it. Um but yeah. I think you're totally right. Like there's there was also an active effort on the part of the Soviet Union to um sort of keep these regions quiet even among themselves like there's documented efforts of the soviets were very good about documenting languages and so it's part of the reason i studied russian is because there's so much stuff on central asia written in russian but they purposefully when they cyrillicized all of these alphabets for these languages and they mm -hmm. started using the cyrillic script for it um they purposefully like did them differently whether it was changing alphabetical order or you know this letter in Kazakh is uh, but in in Kyrgyz it's it's just ooh, or you know like little nuanced things in order to try to separate these 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 ethnic groups both in terms of making them feel linguistically different as well as I think there was very much a planning on the Soviet part of thinking about if we keep them separate and remind them of their differences they won't rise up as sort of this pan-turkic central asian nation that would revolt against us mm -hmm. um and you see this in boundaries you see this in you know like when so they were oblasts at the time 
um, and sort of where their boundaries were. And then a lot of those borders became statehood borders after the fall of the Soviet Union in 91. Um, and, and, you know, things like with natural resources being dependent on each other. Um, so like Tajikistan exports a lot of, uh, electricity because of hydroelectric power and some of the other Central Asian states are like majority dependent on Tajikistan's hydroelectric power. And so sort of breaking them off was very much an aspect of Soviet planning. Um, and then because the Soviets didn't like sharing things with the rest of the world, they also didn't let us know about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's totally a region of the world that's understudied that's misunderstood um some of it because of the soviets some of it because of you know western europeans and americans just not caring enough some of it in the more recent days on purpose you know so countries like turkmenistan which are very much isolated and shut off it's difficult you know it's difficult to go to turkmenistan it's difficult to find books about turkmenistan um because the state is so isolated almost to the point of you know it's very similar to like North Korea, but less, you know. Threats. I was just thinking that, isn't it weird how we're all how we're all obsessed and fascinated with North Korea, but no one is obsessed and fascinated with Turkmenistan. Like some of us are obsessed with get, fascinated get, with Turkmenistan. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly am. I mean, the Turkmen, the Turkmen president, if you can call them presidents, um, the two Turkmen presidents that have been around so far, they're great for like great propaganda videos, great like. You know, it's it's very much a sarcastic and kind of poking fun way that we're obsessed with them. But like the current Turkmen president, I always mess up his whole life. It's like Bertie Mohamedov or something like that. But I just refer to him as Bertie. I mean, he has entire YouTube videos of him like playing music and rapping with his grandson. Um, you know, he's he's great <laughs> in a very sort of ironic okay, way. Okay, I'm going to try. Like, please send me the link and I'm going to put this in the show notes it. for everybody. The Turkmen president having a rap and like you say president in the sense of oh you happen to be president for life and a hundred percent of people vote for you in all of the elections yeah Good exactly yeah i know it's it's just <laughs> democracy right um <laughs> okay before i can already tell like half of my questions i'm not even going to be able to ask you so erin i know i'm right? going to bring you back <laughs> we're going to have another episode about how you study and um, okay. the many unique ways that the affect how you learn languages because well i don't know just become a friend of the show and come back a thousand times it'll be fine (laughs) that's fair now if somebody has sort of a bucket list of languages and the bucket list of languages reads like spanish and italian and and maybe chinese and sort of you know the the classics let's say modern classics modern foreign languages um (laughs) why on earth would they would you would you make a case for them adding a language from this part of the world, be it Pashto, be it Turkmen, be it Arabic? On a very practical level, I would say something like Arabic is just, you know, even if you're just running on practicalities, like you have 400 million native speakers of Arabic. That's a large swath of the world right there. Um, and if you're interested in dialects, Arabic, 100%, there's so many dialects to the point where they're not mutually intelligible at times. Um if you're interested in literature and poetry, Persian poetry is gorgeous. Even Pashto poetry, this is one of those understudied, underrepresentative fields, I think because of the sort of turbulent history of um of Afghanistan and of um yeah, of Afghanistan and of uh, I don't want to say of Pashtuns because it's, a lot of it is other people causing issues for Pashtuns. Um but Pashto has a very 
long history of beautiful poetry and literature. Um, I love Central Asian music. If you're interested in music, if you're interested in music, you can't go wrong anywhere in this region. Arab music is amazing. Armenian music is amazing. Iranian music is amazing. Um, and I mean both traditional, modern, what modern artists are doing, um, blending traditional music with modern uh, styles. Um, so personally, like my bucket list for the region is Arabic, which I have, and Persian, which I have. And then definitely, I would say um, Pashto, Kazakh, and Armenian are definitely high on the list. Um, and... Yeah, I think there's just, there's a reason, excuse me, there's a reason to study each one, you know, but there's something about the sound of Kazakh that I really love. Um, Pashto is gorgeous. Pashto is great literature. Um, Armenian, again, there's just something about, I almost want to say like the sounds are warm. I just, I love the sound of Armenian. And, and you know, I think people hear it and they're like, oh, that's easy. I can do that. But it's harder than you think. Like some of the sounds for English speakers. Um, same with Pashto. Well, no, I don't think anybody listens to Pashto and goes, that's easy. <laughs> but yeah, I would say those are definitely like my bucket list ones. Like go check those out. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, they're they're all great and they all have their own sort of cultures and things. Even, even languages that don't have states. So something like Uyghur, for example, which is a whole separate thing we can talk about, about, you know, the way Uyghurs are treated inside of China and, you know, and then the Uyghur diaspora throughout Central Asia. Uyghur has a great literary history, um, you know, and so they're all, they all have their, their reasons to be studied. I would say, honestly, I would just say go exploring, whether it's dabbling, whether it's listening to music, whether it's, you know, just listening to those videos on YouTube of people speaking these languages and just whatever strikes you in in a way that you can't explain that's the one mm-hmm. you know you talked about passion earlier and i 100 percent believe it there are languages german for example no offense that they just never hit me and even though i studied them i never clicked with them and and you know but then there are languages that i hear arabic um dari especially dari like that dialect of persian pashto um Kazakh and and Armenian and I just listen to them and even when I don't know what's being said I just I like my soul melts in the sounds oh yeah all right so we have Erin Erin starter (laughs) kit really for for these languages I think you've just given it like if listeners if you feel like Erin's just given you homework for the rest of your life um (laughs) yes for the rest of your life please don't worry about it just like like you said it's just Take the one that speaks to you because I think we're here for the passion. And I, I certainly always with the fluent show, but with everything I do, I kind of want to make a case for learning a language without having to give it that sometimes stupid, arbitrary justification of like, yes, I travel there twice a year. Therefore, I must learn French before I learn like Swedish, even though Swedish sounds really cool and I'm really into it. Like, whatever. You don't have to. Just just pick one because realistically, English works fine. English works fine almost everywhere. And I mean, I've traveled to Kazakhstan. I had no Russian. I had no Kazakh. I know I was in Almaty and I wasn't in some remote village and Almaty is fairly cosmopolitan um, mm-hmm. for, for Kazakhstan. A different kind of cosmopolitan, but, you know, it's not London or whatever. <laughs> but like... You know, I waved down, I remember waving down a taxi driver because that's what you do. You kind of just 
flap your hand about and then some random person stops and that's that's your taxi and i love it oh my yeah. god yeah god i miss kazakhstan <laughs> got massive insurance trouble with my employer and they were like that's not okay and i'm like it's it's a tenth of the price of the official taxi um exactly yeah just get you know it saves you money no it wasn't really a case anyway but you know like i i got by um maybe like german is fairly learned so with me going there and having i remember so distinctly sitting in this taxi and and trying to communicate to this taxi driver because all i was able to do was like shout holiday inn holiday inn um and then the name <laughs> of the street at him um and then just wave my arms about because he didn't know where the holiday inn was because fairly new and it was just me going like ah yeah um Fodorova and this street and this street <laughs> it was so bad and <laughs> he's laughing his head off I'm laughing my head off and I've said to like I'm trying to say like Niemski uh Franzuski like all the while not being able to speak Russian so just trying to make the language's name sound a bit Russian really yeah. uh, like before like <laughs> Fran Franzuski yeah yeah Angli no, yeah. no that's not working and he's just like no 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 <laughs> and then he, he says to me Uzbek, Kazakh. I'm like, nope, <laughs> nope, sorry. <laughs> so even nope, between not like, and Russian, of course, no. So between us, I think we had a good ten languages and could talk to each other at all. <laughs> but it's it's fine, right? It's it's the way. It's it's so much about hospitality, having that open mind, having that open heart, and and in a way, a region that you know so little about. It gives you even more of that. It gives you even more of that kind of gift of having an awful lot of new stuff to explore. And like you say, Aaron, like exploring with your heart. Um, so I'm I'm all behind that. This is great. <laughs> oh, yeah. I totally think, you know, just I don't care if it's even like, you know, some people don't feel sounds or languages the way I, I do sometimes. But it's like, you know, if you really like Armenian cinema go study Armenia. And if you really like, you know, this isn't Central or Western Asia, but if you really like, you know, the manga or something, go study Japanese, whatever it mm -hmm. is that is, that is, you know, something that we care about, that, that, that pushes us to study a language. I think that's what really makes it more than anything. And, and I think definitely exploring cultures is a big part of this as well, especially in this region where, you know, like in Central Asia, you're right. If you know Russian, you can get by. I got by with Russian in Armenia and in Georgia. Yeah, totally. But Georgians Georgians would answer me in Georgian. They wanted me to speak the little Georgian that I knew with them. They cared more about me speaking Georgian. And if I had spoken more Georgian, I think I would have experienced Georgia in a different way. And I think it's the same sort of thing that you can go to Kazakhstan and you can speak Russian and you can even speak English. More and more people, especially my generation and younger, you know, they're they're studying English even more Absolutely. than maybe they're studying Russian. But if you even just basic Kazakh and show an interest, it just it opens up the world in a way that 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 relying on these big sort of lingua franca like English, French or or, or Russian or something, um, that they just don't open those doors for you in the same way. Mm, and what people often forget, and I'm, I'm going to kind of say this as the closing word, like I said, yeah. I've got another interview <laughs> with Erin in me. I've got about seven more. So don't worry, listeners, we'll bring it back. Um, but the thing that people often, I think, don't appreciate is, you know, we're not talking about airy-fairy, feely matters of the heart. 
like that that mean you're going to be bad at the language all that stuff is what makes you really good at the language it's not how many times your flashcard it's not how good is your srs system it's if you are really into it your srs system can be awful can be can be shit and and you can still smash it absolutely Mm -hmm. Uh, 100 percent. i think people motivation is the key yeah motivation and motivation it's that thing it's i mean there's there's research into this it's it's intrinsic right not extrinsic Mm -hmm. but intrinsic if you can find it within yourself something that really like is you and why you want to do it you're going to do you're going to do better every single time oh yeah Mm-hmm. Now, Erin, if people want to hear from you more than this very limited time and very like, I feel like we've got we've had um, a quarter slice of of your your knowledge, your intelligence, and everything. So, <laughs> if people can't wait for the fluent show, I think you're starting a podcast as well. So, I'm just going to give you a minute to plug uh, before we sign off, please. Sure. Um, so. In the short term, um, you can go hop on Instagram and find me. Um, I'm polyglot Aaron everywhere, or in German, polyglotlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's everywhere. I have a YouTube, I have a Facebook page, I have an Instagram but and a Twitter, but I'm way more active on Instagram than anywhere else. It's definitely my platform. Um, and yes, I am starting a podcast. Uh, I'm in the last maybe a week or two of setting things up. But by the time this episode uh, gets published, I should have launched by now. So you can find my podcast, which is Exhaling Words, um, on pretty much every podcast streaming platform. And of course, I'll have links to it in my Instagram. And it'll literally just be me talking um, every episode. It's if. It came to me as a place of, I tend to do a lot of these sort of Instagram rants where, not rants, but I just have so much built up inside of me, whether it's passion, whether it's frustration, whatever it is, um, usually about my languages, usually about um, this region. And I wanted a place to sort of just put all of it out there um, in in a way that people on Instagram seem to respond to very well, which is just me getting up and talking for a while. Um, so if you're interested in just listening to me talk for for 30 to 60 minutes every week, um, you can check out my podcast, Exhaling Words, um, on, you know, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, you know, all of the other places that you might listen to your podcast. If you're listening to The Fluent Show right now, whatever thing you're using to listen to The Fluent Show with, good chance that thing will also give you Exhaling Words. And if not, just head to Instagram and it is polyglot, so P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T, and then Erin, E-R-I-N, all one word. And of course, Fluent Show show notes are here for you to help. Exactly. I think this is episode 205, so that will be fluent.show slash 205. Now, all that's left for me to do for this episode... I'm being very disciplined here, <laughs> is to sign off. And Erin, you might have a sense of how I sign off with my guests. So it's goodbye from me in English and then goodbye from you in whatever language you choose. So f- grab a second, choose a language. Okay. okay. All right, listeners, <sighs> thank you so much to Erin Morgan. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. It is goodbye from me. Goodbye and goodbye from Erin. Ma'am, 
Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.